Vendir de rotra diajakem. C'est d'autre alors rotra dis diajed en skiris otis fissier. Conlanger, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road away is William Manis. Hello. And with me over in sunny California, we have David J. Peterson. <laughs> okay. Not all of that was perfect. Some of some of it was perfect, and I want you to acknowledge that. I gave David a new toy, and he's playing with it. He's trying to make a perfect sine wave. No, that was just me. That was just me. That was my voice. I don't know what the Zencaster is. What's what's it even for? What's it doing? So what? Okay, I'll I'll just say um, very briefly here. So I'm recording this episode in a new way. Uh, I found a program that it's sort of web based, and each person is recording their own mic at the same time, and then it'll automatically be put into my Dropbox. And then that way I have three separate tracks instead of two separate tracks. Um, Surely, surely this must cost something, yes? uh, At the moment, no, because it's beta. Wow, that is a real deal. Brought to you by the folks at Zencaster. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But anyway, I'm experimenting with that. If this episode sounds... A little different, you know, it uh, maybe because I use those files, but um, and if in case that fails, we have two backups going anyway. So <laughs> I guess uh, the fact that you are listening to this podcast proves that that at least one thing that's recording this episode succeeded. So <laughs> The fundamental rule of working with computers is you want a belt and suspenders. Yes. It might look hideous, but really, that's the way it has to be. Yes. Okay. So uh, before we get into the topic for today, this is going to be a topic episode, but um, I want to announce, David, you have a book out. By the time this episode is out, your book will be out. Yeah, I was, in fact, I was really surprised that just between the time that we recorded this podcast and the time it aired, uh, my new book, The Art of Language Invention, has been optioned for a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it's starring, it's starring Liam Neeson. It's going to be a bit of a thriller. Um, And technically, it's going to be called Taken Four. (laughs) But... um, but really, it, it was my it was my book that was the inspiration, um, which is a credit, I think, to the entire Conline community. Yeah, I've often felt that there needed to be, you know, a scene for about this hobby where there's big, huge, dramatic music, and you have somebody looking serious, and they walk into a room and they sit down and they open a notebook and then they just sit there and stare, <laughs> and then maybe write down a few notes that looks like it's IPA, and then they stare some more for you know. 15 minutes, but all with like super dramatic. You have an image of, of their dictionary or whatever, yeah, but with super, excuse me, super dramatic music. And, you know, maybe, maybe a techno fight track in there somewhere. I possess a very particular set of skills. Yeah. I can conjugate any verb. 
I can create conjugations. I will find your verb and I will conjugate it. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll see if any of that uh, happens in any film coming up, including the, including the documentary. That would be interesting. Anyway, uh, so that's the art of language invention. You can buy it now. Uh, William and I have both wrote, written reviews. We both think it's good. Of course, David is a friend of ours, sort of. <laughs> I have not reviewed the book. I swear I'm gonna. I swear I'm gonna get my review up on Amazon eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there. Sure. And uh, uh, another thing I want to mention really briefly. Um, there was a thing that was going around. Uh, people may have already seen this, but there was a little. Uh, like a mini documentary on uh, Trent Pearson and uh, is it Idrani is his language? Idrani, yeah. And um, it was just a, a really cool little thing uh, by uh, Video West. And they had uh, uh, Radio West interviewed uh, Erica Oakrent and Britton and Josh so, about conlangs. So, uh, so I'll link to that. It's a, a really interesting little thing. More and more, Although you know. That interview was irritating. The interview, I don't know. The the at least the first part, it got a little. It, some uh, some people don't like the talking about Conlang's being quote unquote successful in the way of like Oxlang goals and stuff. And I right, I understand that sentiment. Did you listen to the thing, David? Officially, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well you can watch the video the video is like four minutes but uh yeah that's great oh, yeah. no 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 actually i did see the, the trent pearson video i thought that was very interesting I, I thought that was cool i'd love to see like a little five minute bio on like every single conlanger just like that i think it would be a great series yes. but um as as far as listening to something that's longer than six minutes that isn't a song it's it's really tough sledding with me. <laughs> mm. um, but I do listen to every episode of this podcast, of course, the moment it airs and then several times afterwards. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so anyway, that's all that stuff out of the way. At the end of this, we may uh, ask David a few questions about the book, but uh, we thought we've done a couple of interview episodes in a row I want to get to doing linguistics topics and languages. And so we're going to talk this episode about applicatives. Yay. So uh, I'll start off, give you the basic definition of an applicative. An applicative, basically, it's usually something you have a, something marked on the verb, then it promotes... An oblique argument, so it can be a locative, a benefactive, or an instrumental, or a committative argument, promotes that to the direct object position. And we'll get into all the things of how that happens and why that happens during this episode. So guys, who wants to start out talking? Well, let me, um, let me just share a little bit of background, I think, about this, this very special episode because I, I wanted to mention that um, you know earlier this earlier this year, uh, George, you know George was a very dear friend of mine, uh, reached out to us 
in need, in desperate need. And he said, I'm really busy with graduate school. Um, I, I would love it if if you could each of you record maybe just a short 10 minute episode on whatever you want and 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 email it to me and then said something like, I'll give you more details about it later. So I thought, OK, I'll do that at some point in time. Then he emailed again saying, well, I guess nobody's going to send me anything. So I turned around right away and I recorded a 10 minute episode in one take on applicatives where I said everything I know about applicatives minus some of the other stuff that I also know. And I sent him the file and I said, did you get the file? And this was George's response. Got it. I'll run it sometime soon. There's one I'd like to do myself first. Okay. <laughs> um, getting. That was. <laughs> so, so. But, but I'm, I'm here and happy to talk about applicatives, which I desperately and dearly love. They're one of yes. my favorite things, uh, at least in, in language creation. They really are. They're one of my favorite things. In my defense, basically what happened was <laughs> basically nobody sent me shorts at that time. And then later I put out a thing of, okay, uh, I have all the episodes planned out for the year and everybody can sort of sign up for episode they want to be a guest on. And David... Because every time I talk to David, uh, ask David to do anything for, for the show, there's always a misunderstanding. He signed up for the Applicatives episode this month, thinking that that was about the shorts. That's true. Oh, shorts. Yes. Anyway, can we move on from the meta? Sorry. <laughs> I may cut this whole thing out, but Boo. Let's, uh, let's get on to actual business of applicatives. David, do you want to talk about core things? I have one thing that I want to mention up front in that applicatives are something that is marked on the verb that's fundamental to the definition. So like a, a phrase in English, she baked a cake for me is a benefactive construction, but it isn't a benefactive applicative because nothing happens to the verb, right? The to me is it's in a separate case. Um, or even something like she baked me a cake where there's no obliqueness going on, but it's still a benefactive construction to be an actual applicative. Something has to happen to the verb. Yes. Yeah. And we have a really good example from English um, where it, it, you wouldn't, I'd say, call it an applicative, 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 but it's, it, it really illustrates the, the, uh, the distinction nicely. So, since we're talking about cake baking, and I'm really excited about that, um, we could, I mean, naturally, when you talk about cakes, the first thing that occurs to me is competition, uh, because it's about who can bake a better cake. So, for example, one could say, William baked a better cake than George. Mm -hmm. All right. One could form a, an applicative-like construction and say that William out-baked George. Now, what happened to the cake? It's gone. It was destroyed. Uh, <laughs> instead, uh, George was elevated from the role of uh, being a uh, you know, the object of some sort of a preposition-like thing or a small clause element, elevated from that role to the role of direct object position via a prefix that was added to the verb bake. It went from bake to outbake. Um, 
which is, uh, I think, the way that Minnesotans pronounce um, the Outback Steakhouse. Is that right? No. No, it is not. It's terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> it is terrible. We going to Outback? Sorry. They only do that with G, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, no, that's that's a, a good example. That's, you know, I wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily say that that's an applicative in English. It's sort of a derivational thing, but... Yeah, that's sort of that's pretty much how they work. And we've met we mentioned sort of the like he baked me a cake or she baked me a cake that a lot of like theoretical linguists like like to put that construction like in the same category as applicatives. But it's not what we're really talking about. Um, And the, the outbaked thing is a great sort of example for other things that are going on with applicatives. Mm -hmm. Just like passives, the purpose of an applicative is to let you manage importance, lets you tell the listener what parts matter most. If we've already established that cake baking is going on, then, you know, me outbaking George or George outbaking me um, raises the salience of, you know, the competition um, and cakes are in the background because we already know that information. Similarly, in lots of languages, the only things you can use uh, as the head of relative clauses or the only things that can be made into passives also have to be core arguments. So I was outbaked sounds a little bit weird, but is is workable. Yes. So it's not like most of the time you shouldn't think of applicatives as some kind of weird derivation. It's doing a particular job and that is managing um, it's just argument structure. Who's most important or, or narrative structure rather? What's most important in the sentence at this moment? And applicatives are a way to move them into the core argument structure of the verb. Okay. Just really quick though, it's that's actually a nice um, uh, example there. If you compare, I was outbaked to the alternative I was baked better than. Yeah, that's... It sounds awful. I think it's technically grammatical. Uh, no, that's that's grammatical. That's fine for me, but it's just... Really? Yeah. Not in my idiolect. I mean, well, it's not, it's not great English, but I think it is technically grammatical um, in the sense that if there were a quirky writer who decided to put that into their novel the editor would not turn it back. Right, right. Unlike, um, well, we won't go too far into that, but yeah. uh, unlike some some other things. Uh, oh, uh, well, if I can just uh, build off something that, that William mentioned, um, that's it's actually a nice thing if you're a conlanger to bear in mind that the kind of the, the, the real point of even having applicatives is in order to make something, some other type of construction simpler. Um, and not just to have them. So, for example, uh, the place where uh, in, in one of my languages, Kamakawi, the place where the applicative ends up getting used the most is in uh, relative clauses. And the reason for that is uh, only subjects can be relativized in Kamakawi. You can't relativize anything else. So if you want to relativize an object, a direct object, you have to passivize um, the embedded verb. 
Um, then if you want to relativize any other role, essentially what you have to do is first applicativize it to raise that lower role up to direct object status, then add a passive. And so then you can do something like, um, like uh, I think the example I had in my book was the, the fire that was thrown into. So it's like, you know, you know, who, th- who threw something uh, in, or into what, or, or like, what's the deal with that fire is like, that's the fire that had something thrown into it. Basically you use an applicative and a passive in order to say, this is what's salient about the fire. Um, and that ends up happening a lot more than just regular, you know, uh, applicative use. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, that's, and that's not just Kamakami. That's a pretty common thing in lots of languages that have applicatives. It's to <clears throat> manage moving things around the clauses. Right. So the three most common kinds of applicatives are um, benefactive, instrumental, and locative of some sort. Mm-hmm. The benefactive um, in some languages, frankly, is no different from what we would call a dative. Um, like normal indirect objects in addition to some beneficiary are, you know, in some languages possible for uh, applicative with the benefactive sense. Mm-hmm. The instrumental, just like um, prepositions that might some in some languages, the instrumental is the same as with in the sense of together with. In some languages, your quote unquote instrumental applicative might also mean I went to the store with Bob. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, uh, locative uh, is just, you know, referring to a place I went to the store. And then you can like the fire example that, that David just gave. Um, and then finally, I should have mentioned the benefactive can also be malefactive. You, you know, the judge made the decision against me. Is there are because I think there are. um like languages that distinguish between benefactive and uh, malefactive in other contexts, do they do that with applicatives? Is there a language that does it? I'm the I'm trying to remember from my reading if there's anything that is a purely and solely malefactive applicative, and I can't recall. It's um, any language might have multiple ways to mark these, like multiple benefactives, where one allows a malefactive reading and one doesn't that I recall running across, but I can't think of anywhere you have just. Yeah. If you're talking about a, a non-natural language, if you just wanted to use this for, uh, you know, some sort of an engineering project or an oxlang project, there's certainly uh, no reason that you couldn't have a malefactive specific uh, applicative affix. Yeah. Um, I would find it surprising uh, if there was one in a natural language, but at the same time, if it were from, Either South America or Australia, it wouldn't be that surprising, I guess. Papua New Guinea, that's our, our place for... Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can... Or Papua New Guinea, yeah. You can applicativize malefactive arguments only. That's the only type. If you try to do it for anything else, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I can't think of any really real reason why you couldn't go crazy and have tons of different applicatives. But yeah. in fact, why don't we take that comment and move to something uh, at the bottom of the notes list here. Let's imagine if you did. Let's imagine if you did have a whole bunch of different types of applicatives uh, on your verb, what might you end up with? You might end up with an Austronesian or specifically a language of the Philippine type. (laughs) Not a trigger system, just a bunch of applicatives and passives. That's all it is. Right. And there's also... a. a historical background there. There are yep. 
are like two sources for applicatives. Prepositional or postpositional phrases that have gotten sucked into the verb, such as my favorite, Navajo. <laughs> um, or verb-verb compounds, um, which may or may not still be productive in the language as it exists now. But give gives you a benefactive. Phrases like pick up or use gives you an instrumental. You could easily come up with a verb that has this malefactive sense, um, and that gets sucked into the verb, giving you a malefactive only um, <clears throat> applicative. But over time, once something's been sucked in and become part of your grammar, it sort of starts losing its, um, that core semantic starts to get weak over time. Yeah. And, um, and in fact, you can, you can just imagine in your mind a real simple way to do this. So let's do an instrumental since I think that's easiest. And let's use the verb use. Let's say you have a language that says, you know, what, like I, I eat strawberries, right? Um, and then let's say you have a serial verb construction if you want to specify specifically the instrument. So I eat strawberries, use fork. All right. Now let's say that you can just drop the object, right? And you could just say, I eat, I ate yesterday. We can do that in English. You can do that in a lot of languages. Some you can't, but let's say in this one you can. You could end up with a sentence like, I eat, use fork. If you get that, and pretty soon the use just starts to fuse on there, pretty soon what you've got is an instrumental applicative. Um, and yeah, and that could happen in like, what, a couple months? Pretty <laughs> Don't know about that, but pretty pretty darn fast. As we're talking about this, I, I've been thinking about this, and uh, um, I'm probably going to build an applicative system with, with not, uh, an applicative system out of prepositions in the language I'm currently working on because um, I have fairly early on, I have inflecting prepositions that agree with their objects. And then I'm just going to pull those into the verb. I've, I've had other ways of pulling them into the verb, but I was thinking right. applicatives would be one thing I could do with them. And and certainly that encourages an applicative reading in, in, in the uh, Athabascan languages. That's exactly what happened is, the objects are, I mean, the prepositions are inflected and then they get slurped and Which means <coughs> I guess I need to read up on Navajo. <laughs> um, or, you know, Hoopa or Apache or whatever. There are several to choose from. Hoopa, Hoopa actually, I think is an easier example. Hey, uh, I got a question for you. So you say that the, uh, the, the ad positions are inflected, meaning like, you know, uh, for the uh, object of the preposition would be first, second, third person, etc. Yeah. Was there inflection on the verb before that? Yes, the verbs are also marked um, for subject. So do they have double marking? Object or various. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, goodness, yes. So it's like you, you, th there are different parts on the verb that have to agree with the subject and object multiple times? Uh, not the subject that I've ever seen. Um, and not the object in the sense that an applicative adds a new argument mm -hmm. to your verb. Um, right. The Athabascan languages have a generic object and generic subject markers. So even if your yeah, so even if your original direct object is no longer salient, um, it can still appear without drawing attention to itself. That makes sense. Okay. Cool. Um, there was something I was going to say about that. Okay, so when you have an intransitive verb and it becomes an applicative, you get something that looks an awful lot like a transitive verb. 
when you add an applicative to a transitive verb, what happens to the original direct object? Two possibilities. It can stay there and you just get two direct objects, however your language marks those. Or the original object is kicked out and if it's expressed at all, it has to use some sort of oblique, you know, a prepositional phrase or whatever. Um, different languages cope with it <laughs> differently, so you get to pick. Okay. Yep. In English, I was trying to think, uh, we could, we could probably do any number of really bizarre kind of hacky expressions. So like, Will, William outbaked George in cake baking. Like, I don't even, I don't even think you can just do cakes or in cakes or with respect to cakes. Yeah, some. Yeah, yeah. well, I think most people would like fall over on trying to do. This that. is this is. Partly because English just doesn't really have applicatives. If we did, then we might find some strategy. Or not. We could just like, you know, like some languages, you know, I'm sure lots of languages with applicatives, you just cannot add the original object back. Just like many languages with a passive, you can't add the agent back into the sentence. Right. right. Roman, just go around. You hear my cat? Yes. Yes. Look, I closed one door in a room that has a completely and always open door. And now he's <laughs> complaining because he can't go through the one door that's closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going around now. Now that now that, now that that uh, you've been exposed and made a fool of. There he goes, <laughs> slinking away. Okay. And then, uh, right, at the beginning, I said that applicative should be thought of as sort of the same way you think of passives as more grammar than some sort of derivation. However, as always, once these things happen, there are plenty of languages that have applicatives that have routine senses that are not strictly compositional. Like Tuscarora <clears throat> has a verb for to enter a settlement. And when you use a benefactive, you get sentences like I should settlement enter for you just means I should visit you. So the combination of enter a settlement and a benefactive applicative means visit. Um, so, again, that can start to happen once you've got applicatives as well. Um, another thing that uh, – so we have gone through these different types, benefactive, instrumental, locative. You can also have specifically a committative uh, applicative. That's attested. Um, what I'm understanding, though, is that you don't necessarily need these specific categories. You can have – just one applicative, right? Yes, that's very, yeah. very vague. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, just one applicative that's like any applique argument this gets that that gets promoted. Or you can have one or two specific categories and then a dump applicative. George, we call that the residue applicative. Residue. Yes. That's residue. nice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, be nice to this construction. Yeah, if if you just got the one though, uh, it, it tends to be that it gets used with a, you know, a pretty specific argument for a given verb, and if you want to use it for something else, you kind of have to prime it. Um, right. Is there anything else we want to say specifically <coughs> about applicatives? I ran across a weird sort of thing, which is not quite an applicative, but I thought was interesting. But I'll save that for last. Hmm. Um, hmm. I'm looking forward to that. Well, we've covered we've covered the main use. So, like, just 
reviewing. The the main use is like just like a passive, it's managing your argument structure, bringing things closer in to bring more focus to them. Or as David was saying, if your relative clauses can only uh, cover certain arguments, then you have to move something into that argument position somehow. Yeah, and uh, we covered basic types and yeah, I guess I guess then if you if you're a language creator, the the series of steps you need to go through is first deciding if you should or should not have an applicative. If you do, um, and it's a naturalistic language, it's probably a good idea to figure out what the source is going to be. That's probably going to tell you where it's going to appear on the verb, you know, based on you know where where in the clause uh, the old thing occurred. Uh, then it's a question of if you're going to have one applicative or multiple ones. Um, and if they're going to be multiple ones, what roles they're going to have and what their lexical sources are going to be. And then um, the important question is once you've done your applicative, you've added the applicative to the verb, um, what happens to the demoted object? Um, you know, does it, uh, does it just get put afterwards in exactly the same case that it used to have? Does it have a new case or a new prepositional phrase? Is it easy to reintroduce? Is it difficult to reintroduce? Can you do anything with it once it's been reintroduced? And um, the last bit, the last super important bit for the applicative that I was going to say, and I'm forgetting, (laughs) is, oh, it died. And that's all there is to know. Uh, But an important thing is, like, how are you going to use it? And we've explained that bit of it, what they're usually used for. Because if you, um, this yep. in, in the lost short that David recorded, he made the point of, you know, you can add a whole bunch of things into your conlang, a whole bunch of, uh, um, yeah, a bun- whole bunch of, you know, any kind of features and then have no idea how to use them and never actually have them realized. Yeah, and so then you end up with this with this grammar that has like all these different things, you know, that your conlang does, and then when you go to do a translation, it uses like you know quarter of them. Right. Um, oh, and, and I did remember though the other thing, the other question that you have to be sure to answer when you're doing an applicative is um, you need to consider how it interacts with your other valency changing operations, that is, passives and causatives, and uh, the oh, other one. Yes. What's the other one? Uh, some sort of middle-like thing, some sort of anti-passive. Yeah, um, and that was something I was going to mention. It, it seems like in some languages you have things that look like an applicative um, affix that also does duty um, as a causative sometimes. Yeah. So that seems to happen. That's happened. I've seen run across that more than once. So there's something interesting going on there. I could see that happening. Uh, well, here's the question. If you know anything about the history of the, those things, do they come from a verb meaning to cause? Because I could see that like branching off into two different meanings. Yeah. I, I tried to find good documentation on this and I didn't. I found reference to the phenomenon, but no, nothing really trying hard to explain it. Okay. I, I'll give you one example that I can think of. Well, not not a, a legit example. But think about all of those uh, older English words that begin with four. Um, yeah, thinking like, you know, forego, forewent, um, and others like it, 
which essentially uh, they're kind of like they're kind of like causatives, kind of like applicatives. Uh, they kind of do both. Um, and you can imagine if, you know, for, and we know exactly where that comes from in English. If that was your little prefix, you can imagine it doing either personally. So the funky thing I wanted to talk about is they have things in Amharic, which they call applicatives, but really they're kind of some fun way of the verb additionally cross-referencing certain kinds of prepositional phrases out in the rest of the clause. So it, but it doesn't promote anything. So it's like agreement. So verb, yes, it looks like agreement. But it's it's not it's not it doesn't promote anything. It's not person agreement. It's just the verb has been marked with oh we have a, a benefective out here. Oh we have an instrumental out here. Yeah, it's really weird because I I remember I was looking you 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 gave this example so I pulled it up and I'm looking at this paper and I'm looking at the very first two examples and I'm like that's not an applicative right the stupid argument is still there <laughs> why is it doing that right. it's weird right but what the the point is that. The, the verb is being, yeah, they call it an applicative. I have no idea why. Um, I just ran across it. But for people who like interesting little tidbits, I recommend looking at this paper. We've got it here. It's called The Morphosyntax of Applicative Markers in, in Amharic. And you can go find about <coughs> about this additional bit of cross-referencing. And then there's a bunch of X-bar hoo-ha that you can just... That might, be, that might be just sort of a thing of... Um, but it's they knew the term applicative and didn't know what else to call this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that sounds like it's sort of, yeah, it's just a, yes, a little... It's a terminological it's, pun. But um, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. I could see that like becoming an applicative in the future or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting little applicative adjacent thing. I, I, I could actually see it starting out as an applicative. Um, and then it just, people reanalyze it as agreement. So they start using it. I would be shocked if in these first two sentences that you got here, you couldn't do it without the expressed arguments. If it was understood who they referred to. Yeah. There's, there's not a longer continuous examples there to get context. So that does make it hard to see what is going on. I think it's hard to know with Sumerian just because, the writing system is so defective until it had been dead for several thousand years. Mm. Um, but there's this long chain of prefixes that happen on the Sumerian verb. And some of those also seem to be nothing more than agreeing with locative expressions or other case expressions happening upstream in the sentence. Mm. Or at least the grammar I was reading thought that, but there's lots of, um, frankly, tea reading going on with Sumerian. Um, and uh, conflicting analyses. But, I mean, with Sumerian, it's sort of like a Rorschach inkblot test. You can sort of project onto it almost anything you want because we don't know enough. Anyway, that, reminded anyway. me of, that reminded me of doing a field work with a graduate student in my class who just decided one day, I hear tone. He uh, specialized in working on tone in uh, uh -huh. Thai. <laughs> uh -huh. All right. Whatever, man. And was it tone? According to him, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I could have my own issues with that. <laughs> because I do work on tone, and I know yes. you have to, you have to, to, sometimes you'd have to get in a little deep to, to understand what's the difference between tone and stress. So, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. 
All right. Do we have anything else to say <coughs> about applicatives? I think this is fine. I think we've got everything, uh, unless you want to le- read some laundry list of examples somewhere. But um, uh, we've covered the basic stuff. Um, you guys, yeah. They're pretty common. So if you're a serial monogamist in terms of conlangs, that, that is, if you're not just working on one in your life, I recommend trying them in a language or two in your near future. Um, for longer examples, um, the Bantu languages have a core set of applicatives, and there are lots of examples of those. People like to talk about those a lot. Um, and where else are they super common? Uh, Austronesian. <laughs> Austronesian, but I don't understand that, so I don't recommend that to people. <laughs> I mean, maybe someday I'll figure it out, but until then, yeah. Okay. Yes. David, you have a book. Yep. Which you which talks about applicative. It does. It does. <laughs> did I actually include applicatives in you, the book? You did. You did mention applicatives in 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 the thing, and you said everybody should have the applicatives. <laughs> I think. <laughs> how do I how do I get away with that? This was a this is supposed to be a text for for people that had absolutely no background in language at all, and I got to applicatives. It's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Many things get covered. Um, uh, so I'm curious what sort of hair pulling was involved, if any, when it came to write the chapter on sounds. Because uh, writing yeah. about phonology is sort of like dancing about, I don't know, math, math, whatever that phrase is. It's tough to do. So yeah. this is what happened with the book, because I did write it chronologically. Um, I wanted to skip to the section on writing systems, but... I eat my vegetables first anyway. But um, so when I, when I started writing the book, uh, you know, I wrote the, the introductory matter and then I started writing the section on phonology um, and I saw it getting a little long. So I decided to kind of condense some things like uh, I thought, well, all right, maybe, maybe I won't uh, go into describing in full detail how um, how the, the systems of clicks works, <clears throat> the system of clicks work in African languages. I'll just ex- explain the airstream mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so I finished up the, um, I finished up the section and I, like, uh, I, I sent it on to my editor just to show her that I was working and, and she emailed me back and said, um, we had imagined that the book would be 72,000 words total. Um, you might consider cutting this down a little bit because the section <laughs> that I had sent her was 66,000 words. Oh God. And that was with yeah. me. That was with me already self editing um, at the end of that uh, phonology phonetics section. So um, I had to go back and cut out about 40,000 words of that section. And then I wrote the rest of it. I, I think that at the beginning, when uh, the uh, title of the book was going to be How to Invent a Language, um, I really sat down to write everything that you could possibly need to know in order to create a language and uh, kind of pulled me back on that. So um, that was when uh, my brother-in-law actually suggested a change in the title. So now it was like, it's not false advertising. It's just about <laughs> yeah. the art of language invention. And uh, having read it, you know, it is very sort of condensed and it's sort of all uh, brief and introductory. I, I, um, 
uh, like my suggestion was that like this could be like someone's first foray into it and then they could go further or but I saw um I liked that you did your case studies because that's the part for us who who know a little know a bit about linguistics already and uh, are already conlangers that's the stuff that's valuable to us is to see how you met these particular challenges that you had so what was the what was behind the choice to include that? Um, that? Those actually weren't even my idea. That was the editor that had that idea. And I thought, oh, well, no, that is that is a good idea. Um, though I should say that those two were con- got condensed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, there's only so much you can say. I know. Well, I mean, I had more to say about all of them, except for maybe uh, the Dothraki one, which is the first one, which is just about sounds, where it's like, you can almost say everything that you wanted to say there if you're just talking about the sound of it. But, um, but yeah, for the, for the other three, the, each of those got condensed. But um, anyway, so yeah, credit my amazing editor, Elda Roeder, who, by the way, and, and this is, I think is really important, approached me about the book. She said, do you want to write this? So it wasn't like I had a manuscript and shopped it around. She said, hey, we think this is a good idea. Would you like to do it? And I was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe this happened. So <laughs> I don't know what gave her the idea, but um, I owe her an incredible debt. And I think that was just amazing that that happened. So um, anyway, but... Uh, at least for, for some of those things, like, um, I know I've said this before on, on the conlang list and, and maybe in other places, but, um, to, to bring in kind of a slightly different topic, uh, one of the things that I wanted to do with Fiat Lingua, you know, our little archive of, of articles is essentially for conlangers to kind of reflect on what it is they do and put up things that would be like one of my case studies, perhaps even longer, because you know, we don't care about length there, um, where the, the conlanger is themselves going through either the, the process of creating the entire language, creating a portion of the language, and really reflecting on why it is they did what they did. Even if at one point it's like, you know, as, the, as far as like the, the phonological form of this suffix, it was just... Um, it was just my initials backwards or, you know, or I just went to a, 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 you know, a phonology generator and hit the button and I liked this one for whatever reason. Um, that I think is really interesting, uh, especially to conlangers. And so that's something I would like to see more of. So anyway, um, however we got here. Uh, uh, yeah, so it's, it's good. I don't know. It's, it's good to me to hear that you liked that part. Um, you know, and I, and I think that, uh, and this is, I think, something you said in your review, George, but I think it's, it, it repays uh, saying again. And it's not like uh, George is saying he liked it because he's like, oh, I didn't know what I was doing before. And now I read this case study and I know how to do it. It's like, no, 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 no. You just get the sense of what another conlanger is doing, why they're making the choices they're making. So you can just maybe see a different point of view. Right. And maybe at the end of it, you'll say, well, actually, um, Either I think I'm on the right track here because I was doing basically the same thing, or I do things a little differently and I like it better. That's useful, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 And I think um, in my review, I mentioned like one place where you were going th- at things from one direction and I would have probably gone from another direction. 
just because I did have different experiences with yeah. language. And in fact, by the way, if I can if I can recommend your review, I found that interesting because that would not have occurred to me. And and I think again, it's because of my background in language. Right. Your approach would not have occurred to me, and I found that really interesting because it's like, wow, that is a totally different way I could have gone with that and it would have worked. Yeah, so so we're not like talking around each other. I'll I'll just like spill the beans on what what we're talking about is, um, yeah. So David was talking about for Erathiant, he wanted you wanted the language to be very slow, uh, in terms of like yeah. syllable rate, and the way that you thought about it is your mind went to Inuktitut or yeah, was you know, it? one of the Inuktitut languages. It was a yeah, Siglatun, one, one, one of those uh, Inuit languages. And so you're, it didn't end up like this, but your starting point is like crazy polysynthetic language with giant long words. And then, but because, you know, I haven't, you know, heard a lot of that language and I've never thought of it as slow. The language I think of as slow is Mandarin Chinese and Chinese languages in general. They have a fairly low syllable rate, but it's a completely different you know, typologically different kind of language. Yeah, almost backwards. It's, yeah, it's come completely the other way around. So I would have been approaching that problem from exactly the opposite direction that you were almost. So it's it was just fun for me to think about how, you know, because we are familiar with different languages, we would have just thought about this problem in a totally yep. different way. And I think that... Uh... That goes to the larger point of it's it, it, it sharing just improves our craft gives you it gives you more more tools in your arsenal, right? Yeah, I mean you bring it up, uh, you know the art of language invention, and because I've taken up visual arts again in my rudimentary way at this point, and uh, right there are many different ways of painting a painting. Some people spend days working on an underdrawing which might be in pencil, it might be in charcoal, and the perspective is perfect, um, and everything is worked out, sometimes in significant detail, or they might do that same under um, work with a brush. They might draw it on in some paint and then paint over, and other people draw a few lines to help them know what's going on and just attack and assault the canvas with paint, and you get <laughs> perfectly fine paintings out of all approaches. Yeah. Um, but it's worthwhile even for um, experienced artists to see other ways of doing things, either because you want to play with it some way, not that you're going to copy that approach necessarily, but, you know, use the approach for a while to find out what you can learn for it and then say, okay, these three things I like, and then you move on. For the case studies, it seems like that must be great news for people who are fans of things like Erathian or um, Hyvalerian, because my feeling is that is like the, a clear layout of stuff that's otherwise only been released piecemeal. Mm, yeah, that's true. Like, I think that's the first time I've seen a full discussion in detail of the large Erathian noun class system. Yeah, and that was yeah, knowing, one knowing, of my fun parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, knowing that, uh, well, knowing that uh, that idea came from the publisher, that's probably what they were thinking. They were probably thinking to include those as like a marketing thing to fans probably, of... Yeah these properties that you work for. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting for conlangers too. And for 
conlangers who aren't even necessarily the the beginner types. And how did they feel about the typesetting fun that this book must have been? Oh, good God. All right. So let me just <laughs> mention that, um, you know, of course, I, I've studied Arabic, uh, at, you know, at the college level, and I'm a big fan of the Arabic language. So often when I need to, uh, you know, come up with examples of things, I, I go to Arabic. Um, Arabic, of course, is a wonderful writing system that is written from right to left. And, um, and it's supported by Unicode even if uh, it's poorly understood by, say, word processors. And I did my utmost to make sure that every single example of Arabic was exactly correct um, and, and followed, you know, Unicode guidelines and everything. I sent it off. They sent me back like their first pass. Absolutely no example was correct in an <laughs> utterly, in utterly baffling way. So it's like sometimes uh, the Arabic letters would be separated uh, so that it was just, you know, one letter straight after another in its isolation form. Um, right. Sometimes there was one baffling time where each word looked correct, but the word order had been reversed. Like, <laughs> I don't even understand how that happened. Um, and then, you know, other, other times where it's just like uh, there was, you know, a, a, a long line break where it's like uh, there was a particularly long connection. For some reason, there was a bizarre line break between it. The, what we ended up having to do is we did an image for every single Arabic example in that book. Every single one. I mean, oh. and we, we, the funny thing was we had to do that too for, um, for, the, de for the defiance languages, for the writing systems, um, because, because I, I couldn't give them the fonts. So, so even though I had the fonts, you know, I couldn't give them the fonts. I could, so I could just send them pictures of everything. So it's just... Uh, Oh, are, are, are the rights on the fonts locked down? Yeah. Or what? Yeah. I mean, the rights on everything are, are locked down. So okay. we'll, we'll see. It just ended up, I was just like, all right, whatever. So there are like millions of, of images in that book, some of them very small, even the ones that occur inside the text. And um, the typesetters just had, uh, just had a heck of a time making it come out right. So the fact that it looks anything even close to the way it looks now is just a miracle. Um, and I'm really glad of it. But uh, yeah, if you increase the font size, the Arabic is not going to increase proportionally, which is <laughs> just nuts considering the Unicode world we live in. Right. I, I, I remember another little thing of, so William and I got um, galley copies of that, this, which were uncorrected. And you have one example in Thai that's supposed to be showing like that, you know, you have these little curls in the letters but in the original galley, it was too small to even make out as a character. <laughs> it's like little blobs. A lot of the a lot of the images were were really small, um, and I ended up asking them to increase them in size, and they did. Like uh, for example, like uh, Trent Pearson sent me a wonderful example, really detailed example, but it was so small that you couldn't see the detail. So it was like, well, what's what's the point of even including it? So I got them to increase the size. Hopefully. Everybody can now see all the little loops on the tie example. Right. The little eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm always reminded of uh, Barry Warsaw as a, a developer on Python, and he said, everyone wants Unicode until they get it. <laughs> so that's, that's exasperating. That has to be <clears throat> all images. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on getting any sleep at all during yeah, the production really. phase of the book. 
Yeah, and mm-hmm. and thank you guys for braving through the uh, the uncorrected uh, copy. <laughs> yeah, it was mostly good. It was it was fine. Yeah. There were a couple of. Uh, by the way, I fixed that example, uh, uh, William. The Greek. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh! There was a bad Greek example. No, I just, I've, I just uh, missed, uh, missed a coda, missed R. Forgot about words like you know, mate. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an important one, I guess. Yeah, kind of important. Anyway, yes, people should people should read the book, even advanced conlangers. I especially think um, uh, for people who've not done a lot of historical conlanging, that chapter has a lot to offer. Um, lots and lots of uh, echoes of Bybee. Not surprisingly, I feel. Yeah. Um, in that, but uh, really just interesting stuff in thinking about semantic history and semantic development. Yeah. And also, um, you know, to, to, to get you started on sort of the lexicon centric conlanging that, that David likes to do and that I'm starting to favor now. <laughs> Finally, welcome to the fold. That's did uh, you, yes. hey. Did you did you guys did you guys did you guys like the definition of morpheme in the glossary? You know, I noticed you using that word, and and that sort of came to my attention, but I didn't want to dig into it for fear of arousing irritation because I wasn't sure what convinced you to use the term. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I just. I, 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 that was, that was my little joke. That was my little joke. I included it. it, it the, oh, let's see. Yeah. You see that? Oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know some people who would not like that definition, but it's, uh, it's not, it, it's not actually, it's, it's not an appropriate definition, but, um, you know, no, but, oh, good. There you go. And Hey, I got through an entire book on language creation with only using the word once in that instance, saying something. (laughs) Anyway. So I think that's, uh, all that, uh, we really need to cover today. And we've got plenty of stuff. Oh yeah. Recorded here. So, uh, I think we can wrap this up. One final thing, just a, a, a little tag note. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say it. Do you guys have anything Nope. Any last things to share before we end? Okay. Wait, what? Um, oh, one. Wait, did you not have anything to share, William? Nope. Okay. That, well, I just wanted to share one thing, and that was it. Just say thank you guys very much for having me on. I appreciate it. No problem. Uh, thank you, David, for for being on the show. And I wanted, uh, yeah, I have one little tag. It's just because it's on my mind. I'm learning Ho-Chunk. Oh, that's right. And I have, I, you know, I don't know if we'll ever feature it on the show. I might actually want to actually talk to some people about that before I decide to do that. But um, I did think I wanted to share this one little tidbit. If you're afraid that your words for numbers are getting too long. The Ho Chunk word for nine is Hijanki Chushkoni. <laughs> just a just a minor explanation. It's sort of it means it it can break down as sort of like minus one or something, so it's it's like ten minus one. But yes, a basic number under ten is six syllables long. So 
<laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to say happy conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. All of those are conlangery. And if you would like to hear your conlang featured on the top of the show, you can look at our contribute page. It has the instructions for what you need to translate and how to send it to me. Conlangery's web space is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our music is by Null Device. <laughs> <laughs>